It's interesting that defense policy has not changed all that radically from Obama to Trump to Biden. It is uh, an area of considerable continuity, partly because President Trump, for all of his disruptive ideas, he uh, hired people like Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis and then John Bolton, who were much more of a traditional foreign policy mindset and definitely believed in a strong U.S. military and a strong commitment to our allies. Hello, and welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. I'm the host, Gina Lim. With the increase in the 2023 defense budget predicted to be in the hundred billions, there has been much controversy and discussion over this announcement. In this episode, we'll discuss the 2023 National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA, and Biden's and the Senate's controversial increases in this budget. We will explore the various responses from both political parties, as well as what the new defense budget means for Biden's foreign policy priorities. In order to explain the current discussions around the NDAA and what this increase means for the future of the Biden administration, joining us today on the podcast is Michael E. O'Hanlon. Michael E. O'Hanlon is a senior fellow and director of research and foreign policy at the Brookings Institution, where he specializes in U.S. defense strategy, the use of military force, and American national security policy. He directs the Center on Security, Strategy, and Technology, as well as the Defense Industrial-Based Working Group, and will be the inaugural holder of the Philip H. Knight Chair in the Defense and Strategy. He's currently an adjunct professor at Columbia, Georgetown, and George Washington Universities, and a member of the International Institute for Strategic Studies. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Hi, Mike. Thank you for joining us on the Hopkins Podcast of Foreign Affairs today. It's nice to be with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, definitely. Today, as mentioned, we're going to go over the Biden's, President Biden's defense budget. So to start, could you give our listeners a brief explanation on what the 2022 National Defense Authorization Act and its priorities this year? Sure. So as you know, we are now in the month of June, which means we are about three-fourths of the way, almost three-fourths of the way through fiscal year 2022. And fiscal year 2023 will begin October 1st. So the 2022 defense budget is effectively the law of the land. And it's in the broad range of $775 billion. I can't remember the exact number. Uh, These things tend to also require a little bit of attention to exactly what's being described because sometimes people say defense budget, and that means Department of Defense. And sometimes they say national defense budget, but that also includes the Department of Energy's nuclear weapons activities, which is another 30 billion bucks. And so when you put it all together, um, you wind up with an overall national defense budget that is greater than the Department of Defense budget. But anyway, you're in that range of 770 billion to 775 billion. That's obviously a huge amount of money. Even after you adjust for inflation, it's substantially more than the Cold War average. And it's more than the peaks of our spending, even during, for example, the Vietnam War. And, uh, and yet it's for a military that's not that big compared to its Cold War size and shape. Uh, so it's, a, it's an expensive military per person in terms of the weaponry and technology, in terms of really the compensation for our men and women in uniform. They get paid reasonably well uh, compared to people of similar age and experience and education in the uh, civilian economy. And that's a good thing, I believe, in an all-volunteer force. And of course, it's a busy military that winds up 
doing a lot of things around the world, even if we're technically not engaged in a major conflict. There's just so many activities that involve exercises or support for the Ukrainians or many other things that keep the armed forces busy. So that's sort of a 101 to the size and shape of the defense budget. Uh, and it, it's just to give you one last figure, the active duty force today is about 1.3 million people, 1.3 million troops. There are about another 800,000 in the reserve and guard. And then there are about another three quarters of a million who are full-time employees of the Department of Defense, but as civilians. And so you add all that up together, and that's close to 3 million people, not even counting the contractors who make the weapons in private companies. If you add them in as well, you're talking about an overall defense establishment in the United States of more than 5 million people. Right. So that's pretty much, as you mentioned, what the NDAA kind of covers in their budget. But what kind of has drawn attention is this year's Biden's call for $813 billion, or a 4% increase in defense budget for the year 2023. And while 4% doesn't sound like a lot when we're talking the billions, it is quite a bit, as you probably know. Can you explain the reasoning behind specifically his decision and why there is controversy over the decision? Well, the question of how much the 2023 budget should increase relative to 2022 is now being dominated by the inflation issue. In most years in the last, really my whole career, going back to 1990, inflation wasn't really a big problem. And so you could sort of count on it being anywhere between 1% and 3% per year. And you would just factor that in and sort of to your baseline and assume the defense budget would probably grow at least that much just to keep up with inflation, unless we were in a period of downsizing, like right after the Cold War. But as you know, going back to roughly the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February, although I think it predated that a bit because of supply chain interruptions due to COVID, we've had a level of inflation not seen in this country in decades. And what that means is that 4% is actually losing ground, not gaining spending power, because the expectation is that with monthly inflation going at an annual rate of 8%, a 4% increase in the defense budget from 2022 to 2023 would actually, again, be a net loss in buying power. It would be a real cut if inflation stays anywhere close to where it is right now. And, you know, pretty soon we're going to be several months into this inflationary bout. So I think we can already feel pretty much guaranteed that over the course of 2022, which doesn't, now I'm using calendar year, doesn't quite overlap with the fiscal year, but over the course of calendar 2022, inflation will be at least 5% over the course of that year. In other words, even if it comes down from its current uh, 8% rate, even if it goes down to three or 4%, it's still going to average above 5%, probably average above 6% at this point, even if we get lucky and somehow bring the rate down quickly. So you would need at least 6% uh, nominal growth in the, in, the, in the size of the defense budget to tread water. Now, that's why the Senate, under uh, you know, Democratic leadership, but with strong Republican bipartisan support, has been increasing the defense budget above and beyond what President Biden requested. So I just saw a press release that came out yesterday from Senator Inhofe, Senator Reid, and they are looking to appropriate somewhere around $850 billion for 2023 for the national defense budget overall. And that would be something like a 
that would be fairly close to a 10% increase uh, relative to 2022. Please don't hold me to the exact numbers, but I'm in the right ballpark. And I think for conceptual purposes, that's the important place to stay for now is in the right ballpark, because since we don't really know what the inflation rate will be, uh, the, the question is, should we essentially take the current monthly, you know, or annualized rate of 8%, just take that as our starting point, And then whatever additional real growth we wanted, you know, growth above and beyond inflation, you add that on top of the 8%. And yeah, that, that gets us up to about 10%. So if we stick with the Senate number, which I don't know if we will, but if we were to do that, then you would basically be holding steady plus adding a couple percent in real buying power. And that would be essentially what most people who study the defense budget think is necessary if you're going to stick with the current strategy and most of the current force structure and try to keep you know, modernizing with weapons that always tend to, tend to wind up being a little more expensive than the generation before and a little more expensive than often predicted because they incorporate new technology. And of course, things like healthcare costs for our troops and their families tend to go up a little faster than inflation. So if you're trying to keep the force excellent and modernize it, you probably need to be a little higher than the inflation rate. And that's why the Senate Armed Services Committee has just chosen 10% rather than President Biden's 4% as their uh, goal for the 2023 budget increase relative to last year relative to where we are this minute in the 2022 budget, I should say. I just had a question on what you kind of discussed. Maybe some people think it may be necessary for defense budgets to increase or at least maintain the same level with the inflation and taken into consideration. You mentioned some reasons, but could you maybe expand on what are some other reasons why the defense budget may need to increase? And if you think there may be any way this defense forces or other quality of our current system can be maintained with lower budgets or maybe even just equal budgets keeping in line with inflation. Yeah. So let me start with uh, you know, the first question and just giving a little more detail. So I would say, let's take, for example, fighter jets. Fighter jets today are generally built to be stealthy. So that means they're designed with certain shapes and certain materials on the surface that are just inherently uh, more difficult for radar to see, uh, for radar echo to come back from, and that, therefore they're being made in a more complicated way than previous generations of airplanes. On top of that, they tend to have millions of lines of com computer code because they're trying to guide advanced missiles and trying to take in a lot of data from other sensor networks. And so they're just more complicated than previous generations of jets. And so the F-35 uh, Lightning II that we're building now, it's about $100 million a copy, typically. Earlier jets like the, let's say, F-16 were more like half of that. And so that's just a reflection of the ongoing push of technology. Now, there are times and places where technology can make things cheaper if you do the same, if you want to just achieve the same effect. You know, So computers are always getting cheaper for the same amount of computational power. But of course, what most people want to do is just buy a more advanced computer and so that sort of checkmates any cost savings you were going to get. And the military is the same way. They want to keep ahead. They want to buy the best, most advanced stuff they can. So usually if they have an opportunity to buy sort of a low-tech system that's similar to what they had before or a higher-tech system, especially if it's weaponry that gives you an edge in combat, they'll go for the more expensive, more advanced system. So that's why iPhones keep getting more expensive, and that's why fighter jets keep getting more expensive. Instead of 
using the improvement in computational power to save cost, most people in both you know, consumers buying iPhones as well as the military services buying weapons, they opt for the greater capability and are willing to pay for it. Now, every so often you get an exception to that. And with, with the iPhone, it's what the SE, right? A ch- cheaper version that costs less than a lot of their recent vintages. And that happens to be what I own, by the way, because I don't need the fanciest. And then with the military, you know, if they're just doing things like transporting equipment or if they are uh, performing some kind of a task that, um, you know, is sort of not a combat related task, but it's, you know, some kind of a logistics task or an office maintenance kind of thing. Maybe they can use uh, equipment or technology that's available on the regular commercial market. Maybe they can, you know, use advances in 3D printing or, you know, advanced computing or whatever to save costs, save money, rather than just buy more capability. But that tends to be the exception, not the rule. More often than not, they are trying to make the next generation better, more impressive, than the previous one. And they're also inventing new technology along the way. You know, there's a certain amount of just the creation of new capability, which means it's very hard to set these things to a schedule and very hard to know exactly what something will cost before you start to make it. And typically what you find is if you're trying to make something new, that almost always it's a little harder than you thought, not a little easier. And so you tend to get this upward nudging of cost growth, typically a couple percent a year. Um, if you look out over, you know, the history of the modern American military. So that's the best I can do at explaining it to you. Right. And I just wanted to touch back on what you mentioned about the Senate and how yesterday was revealed that the Senate approved a $45 billion increase to the defense budget. Could you talk about why this decision in the Senate specifically was made and how it has been impacted by various factors such as the conflict in Ukraine and just kind of thinking more towards like outside of inflation and more towards current events? Well, the Ukraine crisis is costing the taxpayer money. And some of it does come through your, you know, the defense budget, as you say, but that's a relatively minor part of the increase because the Ukraine money, um, a lot of it is not DOD you know, defense money. A lot of it is economic assistance. And also there are special appropriations for that sort of thing that you know, sometimes are supervised by the State Department as well as the Pentagon. And we can factor that part out. So you're right, we are spending more on on the Ukraine crisis, but it's not really the main driver of the uh, bigger U.S. defense budget. However, the rise of China and the belligerence of Russia are creating this sense that we have a dangerous international, uh, you know, situation today. And also COVID has made it seem, for those who would like to tighten our belts fiscally, make it seem sort of pointless right now. If you're, if you're spending $6 trillion on COVID relief in one way, shape, or form over a three-year period, the idea that you're going to sort of try to save $5 billion here, $8 billion there in the defense budget, you know, it might be a perfectly worthy thing to attempt in normal times, but we're not really in normal times. And as you know, everything's sort of getting pushed upward. And so the, the basic politics of it are that you know a lot of Republicans say, well, if we're going to spend that much money on COVID relief, we should be making sure our military is strong. And a lot of Democrats agree with that and certainly also would say the politics of this are if we're spending a ton of money on COVID relief, it doesn't look that smart politically to be trying to save, you know, $6 billion in the defense budget when we're spending $6 trillion on COVID relief and and yet the world is dangerous and China is rising and causing trouble and then there's North Korea and Iran. So 
the, the politics of this are not really putting us in a political conversation where anybody prioritizes very much uh, saving money or reducing the deficit. We probably need to get back to that mentality a little bit, but we're not there right now. Then kind of keeping on this track of domestic influences and moving on to kind of foreign policy priorities, in your opinion, what does this budget say about Biden and the administration's foreign policy priorities? Are they looking towards something specific, such as you mentioned Russia or China, for example? Well, they call China the pacing challenge. They don't say that China is a new enemy, but they do say it's the most consequential player on the global stage in terms of what the United States needs to be prepared to address with its own military. So China is easily the world's number two military power right now by almost any measure. They have easily the second biggest military budget. So ours, as we've been discussing, is going to be over $800 billion in the fall in 2023. China's is probably about $250 billion if you, uh, if you count the same kinds of things and then convert to dollars. So it's only about one third of ours, but it's about three times, four times anybody else's in the number three position. Number three position is usually Saudi Arabia or sometimes Russia, depending on exchange rates. Uh, you know, then we have Japan, Germany, France, uh, Great Britain, all in the sort of 50 to 60 billion range. Then we have countries like South Korea, in the 40 billion range and then Italy and, you know, um, Australia and Canada. And so most, actually most of the world's other military spenders, big military spenders are U S allies. So that's one thing we have going for us. That's very advantageous above and beyond the fact that we have the biggest budget on earth. And I should come back to your question therefore about how to save if there's any way to save money in a second. But, but I would say that generally speaking, um, you've got, that kind of a rough configuration across the globe. And, and so even though we're way ahead of China, the problem is that they're growing fast, they're modernizing fast, their military's sort of, you know, newer, flashier stuff in some cases. And most of all, the places we worry about fighting China are close to China and far from the United States, maybe most specifically a possible conflict over Taiwan. And that gives China sort of the home field advantage. And also China has a lot of high tech weaponry, just like we do, that's very good at targeting ships and satellites and planes and runways and all the big kinds of assets we've gotten used to being able to use with impunity in the last few decades, but we're not going to be able to use them with impunity. So people are trying to diversify where we base our power, how we move our, our stuff around the world, reduce our dependence on big, slow, visible, hard to hide, easy to attack targets. And that's going to be an expensive proposition especially if we assume that the places we might fight are far from us and close to potential adversaries. So that probably gets at why the defense budget is still, you know, that's sort of the strategic reason why the budget's still going up so much. And I agree with some of that logic. I also agree that we should take good care of our military personnel and their families. I think if you were going to try to save money, um, you know, it's, it's not that easy, and I don't think there's that much to be saved. You can do things, you can sort of do the nickel and dime stuff that you should do because it just makes the military more efficient with time, like closing some of the bases that we have now that we really don't need. We have probably 20% more base capacity than we need for the military of current size. And I don't really want to cut pay to our forces, but you might be able to sort of close some of the commissaries and the exchanges on the bases, the Troops and their families love those because they get things for a discount, but it's 
you know, not always the best taxpayer use of money to essentially subsidize this kind of a store. And you can, um, you can try to uh, reduce some of the weapons that a lot of people think are still important, but maybe a little less important than they used to be, uh, maybe tanks. And in fact, the Marine Corps is getting rid of tanks. So some of this is happening. Uh, but of course, tanks are not completely worthless. And that's just a good metaphor for the general situation where I would say a, a lot of what we have today, given the range of possible scenarios and missions we may have for our forces, it's hard to really rule out the possibility of involving most of our forces and most of our weapons. So I'm, I'm not really of the view that you can save a lot. Maybe you can put some of the army into the National Guard. We already have a lot of the army in the National Guard. The army is about half active duty and half reserve or National Guard. You could perhaps put even a little larger percentage into the Guard and Reserve, but you, you don't want to push that too far because you need an active force that's ready to fight quickly on short notice, and that is training soldiers, uh, you know, as a full-time job, so they really get excellent at what they do. And many of those soldiers wind up later on in life in the Reserve or National Guard, so that's sort of your pipeline to your larger Reserve component. So I'm just giving you a couple examples of how you can look for savings. And, and um, I know it's probably a little boring, but I guess that's sort of the point is that it's, it's sort of tedious decision-making you have to do to find these savings here and there. And you should always keep trying, but you shouldn't expect dramatic breakthroughs or rapid results. Right. And given these issues that you've mentioned in regards, regards to Biden administration priorities and other factors that do go into the budget, are there or are these new issues that have arisen since, say, the Trump administration? administration? Or have these always been kind of consistent priorities, nothing much has changed, and we're trying to just keep maintaining this quality? Well, it's interesting that defense policy has not changed all that radically from Obama to Trump to Biden. It is uh, an area of considerable continuity, partly because President Trump, for all of his disruptive ideas and his lack of conviction that all these American alliances really served our interests, he uh, hired people like Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis and National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster, and then John Bolton, who were much more of a traditional foreign policy mindset and definitely believed in a strong U.S. military and a strong commitment to our allies. And so there was a 2018, 2018 National Defense Strategy that was written at the Pentagon under Secretary Mattis, who um, I know pretty well and really, really uh, admire. And I think he has a lot of Democratic admirers. So whatever modifications he made to the outgoing Obama administration's defense focus on China and Russia and so forth were often appreciated and taken seriously by a lot of Democrats. So yes, it was written during the Trump administration. And, and you know very well that most Democrats don't really think very highly of Donald Trump. And in many cases, his rhetoric and his ideas were anathema across domestic and foreign policy issues to many Democrats, if not most Democrats. But on defense policy, we wound up not really doing what President Trump's rhetoric would have suggested. We didn't wind up pulling out our forces from any major allied nations abroad. Um, in fact, it was Joe Biden who pulled out of Afghanistan, not Donald Trump, ultimately, and somewhat ironically. And uh, we didn't really scale back uh, you know, the pace at which we were building new weapons. In fact, President Trump decided at some point after criticizing the defense budget for being too big, he then decided that he preferred to, uh, the, you know, preferred the politics perhaps of 
adding more to the defense budget than Obama had been doing and sort of claim that he was the guy who had, you know, partly fixed the military and gotten it in better shape. And to be honest with you, I have to say there's at least a little bit of truth to that. So whether it's focusing more on China, whether it's, you know, making sure our men and women are well paid, whether it's having a military that trains well and maintains its equipment in good shape, whether it's modernizing to keep up with China, these are pretty common priorities across both political parties and across really all recent presidents. So uh, it is striking just how much you've seen uh, things continue as before. And the Biden administration is still tweaking its own national defense strategy, which has been partially released, but is partially being revised. Uh, that may sound confusing, and I think it is, but that's the state of play. And, uh, and yet, I don't think there'll be a lot of dramatic shift from that 2018 Jim Mattis, Donald Trump strategy, um, except on a few nuances here and there. Then to perhaps close us up, what specific changes to the NDAA do you predict will take place as it goes through the final congressional marks up for the fiscal year 2023? Do you think it'll pretty much just stay similar, as you mentioned, and rise up maybe a little bit? Or do you think there will be more significant changes in the immediate future? I think, first of all, the Congress will decide to add money to the budget. And even though the Democrats are in charge of both houses still, uh, they will actually not heed their own president's uh, suggested defense top line, they'll go above it. And they'll have a lot of Republican support for that. And we'll wind up more in the mid 800 billion range than at the lower end of the 800s. That'd be my first prediction. Second, I don't think there'll be any major dramatic shifts in what makes up today's military. It's pretty hard to change that in one year anyway, but I don't even expect uh, that much of an effort to gradually start shifting. We'll keep buying a lot of the same things we've been buying. What I hope is that there'll be sort of an innovation fund of some kind that really focuses in on high technology weaponry and encourages a little faster acquisition of some things like unmanned underwater systems rather than always having you know manned submarines or some uh, munitions that can be launched near China without having big runways or aircraft carriers to do the launching. These are sort of you know come out of small pilotless planes that can be uh, operated off roads and things like that and launched out of essentially a big artillery tube. I hope there are some ideas like that that just push us into some new creative territory. And then we got to keep doing the things we've been doing to um, make our satellites you know, more numerous and smaller and more survivable or at least more redundant and other things like that that just make our command and control network, our sort of the eyes, ears, and nervous system of the military more survivable in the face of enemy attack. I think we got accustomed to that being a pretty dependable capability throughout the you know sort of low-tech wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. But a Russia or a China is going to try to attack us, to blind us, to paralyze us, to make it impossible for us to communicate. And so that command control communications and intelligence or C3I network needs to be stronger, more robust, and more resilient. So those are some of the changes that I hope to see. Uh, but I think, you know, defense policy is about gradualism, and that will probably be the watchword. Well, then, thank you once again, Mike, for this great discussion and coming on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thanks to you. Appreciate it very much. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University 
for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.